This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? Well, we do have a lot of recent literature to catch up on since we've been lately doing some kind of focused themed episodes and haven't really been pulling from the journals as much. But first, I have to tell you about another female eponym. Oh, I thought you were going to ask for a thing we do for no reason. Nope, not yet. This is more important. Okay. Well, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, knit a buck's layer. Okay, all right, yeah. So that's the the pseudolayer of fibrin between the uterine decidua, that the fetal prophylactic tissue, it prevents them from growing into the uterine wall. And then that layer gets disrupted when you have C-sections or myomectomies or something. And then that disruption in Nidabuck's layer, we think, can help lead to invasive placental diseases like placenta accreta or percreta or increta. Yeah, that's right. So this is named after Raisa Nidabuck. I hope, hope I pronounced that right. So she was a Russian pathologist. She was also the first person to describe the spiral arteries in the uterus. She worked under Theodore Langhans, who has giant cells named after him. That's awesome. And the, I guess the, we like to say the Lang, the Langhans lines on the skin. Yeah. She's the only woman, I think, who has either a microscopic or an anatomic structure named after her. Yeah, and her work with spiral arteries really was disruptive at the time because I think people didn't believe that there was any communication between the mother and the fetal circulation until she proved that it existed. So that disrupted the belief of the time. So, okay. So how many women does that get us up to now? Well, still not enough. All right. All right. Well, let me add one more then. You know what a Dubowitz score is, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. Is it, don't, isn't that what we also call the Ballard scoring system, which helps us determine the gestational age of a newborn based on their neurologic signs and anatomic features in case you don't know how far along they were from the prenatal history. Yeah, the Ballard is a sort of more modern improvement. I think they simplified the Dubowitz system a little bit. They are different scales, but they correlate pretty well to each other. And Ballard from the mid-90s simplified the Dubowitz system, I think, from the 19. 70s, late 60s, 70s. So yes, it was named after the Dubowitz was named after Lily Dubowitz and her husband, Victor. So she was a pediatrician and he was a neurologist and they incorporated anatomic and neurologic features into this scale. So that's nice. So it's named after a couple. So in terms of female eponyms, it's only like half of one, right? Okay, well, but you know how that went, right? She did all the work, and then he tried to take some credit for it after she did all the work. That's how that went. Sure, sure. Okay, but I had a whole female eponym, and you only had a half (laughs) of one. So I think I won this round. Maybe you'll do better next time. But anyway, now, what's the thing we do for no reason? Okay, how about using pre-medications before putting in IEDs, particularly something like mesoprostol? Okay, yeah, definitely know about this. So the idea is that a patient takes mesoprostol sometime before an IUD placement, usually several hours before. And then when she comes in, her cervix is softer, which should theoretically make the insertion go more easily and less painfully. That's the theory. So I think this is definitely not an uncommon consideration, at least for nulliparous patients or anyone that the doctor is worried about 
a difficult insertion for, but tell us why this is not a good idea. Well, there are actually lots of trials that look at this technique, as well as using non-steroidals or maybe a narcotic dose or benzodiazepine or some other pre-medication, and none of them show benefit. I'll put a link to an article from the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Canada that reviews some of the literature about mesoprostol specifically prior to IED placement, and they conclude that it does more harm than good. In fact, that's the name of the paper. They reviewed several trials in the paper that showed that both physician reports of placement difficulty didn't change, nor did patients' perception of pain or satisfaction change in any favorable way. In fact, if anything, there were, of course, more side effects, which you might expect with the mesoprostol group, things like diarrhea, which mesoprostol causes, vomiting. They were both common side effects of the medicine and were obviously seen in the treatment group but not the non-treatment group. There was also additional abdominal cramping, and a trend in some studies towards an increased need for pain medicine in the mesoprostal group. So basically, more pain, cramping, diarrhea, and nausea without making it any easier to put the thing in. Some of these trials also included an NSAID, and that didn't make a difference either. Okay, well, I would assume that there's more cramping from the intestines from taking mesoprostol, but could there also possibly be more cramping from the uterus itself? Doesn't the mesoprostol upregulate the uterus's ability to contract, at least in the setting of pregnancy, with labor induction or pregnancy termination or miscarriage management? I'm sure both are contributory, the bowel and the uterus, especially because it's typically a high dose that's used for this, similar to the dose that we use for miscarriage or abortion rather than the dose for labor induction. So some studies also measured the objective ability to dilate the cervix with like a numbered Hager dilator, and again found that the medication made no difference for that either. So in any event, they concluded that mesoprostol at least does more harm than good. That's very interesting, and I wonder if that would hold for selected cases like where they already are known to be stenotic and have failed placement in clinic. But also, I'm I'm also surprised that the NSAIDs don't help. So what if we just forgot about the mesoprostol and just had them take NSAIDs before insertion? So skip all those GI side effects. I'll put a link to a 2015 randomized controlled trial that was published in Contraception that gave women in that study 800 milligrams of ibuprofen prior to IED insertion, and that study found no difference in how women rated pain or in any other aspect of the IED placement. And I'll put another link to a study from 2016 that was published in the Green Journal that asked women to self-administer lidocaine gel on their cervix prior to placement. And these women also reported no reduction in pain with insertion, but they did, of course, feel less pain with the tenaculum placement since they had numbed the area right before placement. Well, that at least makes sense, and maybe that could still be of some tiny benefit, although it seems like a a bit of hassle, too, to take the extra step of the gel. But I'm surprised there's not even at least a little placebo effect. Like if patients know that they're getting an anti-inflammatory or a numbing agent, that they still don't report experiencing less pain. But I suppose also if you just wanted to make the tenaculum placement less painful, you could inject five milliliters of lidocaine right before you placed it. So don't have to do the extra weighting with the gel. Or as we've discussed before, just don't use the tenaculum or at least don't use both teeth. If you really have difficulty without it, then you can still hook one side in the cervical canal and use it as a hook without clamping down on the other side. 
Yeah, exactly. I don't think I've clamped the thing down, the tenaculum down all the way on a woman's cervix to place an IED in many years. And that itself greatly reduces the amount of discomfort that your patient's going to feel. I'll also put a link to a Cochrane review from 2015 that looked at all the studies that had been performed up to that point and included 33 trials looking at various non-steroidals, lidocaine, mesoprostol, all these sorts of things. And they concluded these interventions just weren't effective and that they warranted no further research since there was already quite a few quality studies available that really settled the issue. And the exception to that was the lidocaine for the cervix. I have, and you talk about these difficult cases you've tried to place, you, they, whatever. I have just grabbed some lidocaine and numbed them up. And we can do that quickly in the office, just an intracervical block and use that to then put a tenaculum on, get your metal dilators as necessary, and you don't have to worry about torturing them. So there certainly are exceptions to the rule when patients that are more difficult, but mesoprostol is not going to make that really any better. But again, with the non-steroidals, I would just, I would think they would have some effect at reducing the pain. So it's interesting that the high quality studies have found that it's ineffective, but there are smaller studies, lower quality, that do show some decrease in pain with naproxen at least. So I wonder, can that make sense? Like, can there actually be a benefit where it only shows up in the lower quality studies? But in the higher quality studies, they don't detect that pain improvement for maybe for some other reason. I know you asked me this question just to set me up, and I appreciate it. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Well, I think part of the problem is when you tell a patient who's there for an IUD that she needs to come back and do it on a different day because you need to pre-medicate her and take this medicine. It's going to make it easier if she does, or that she needs to take pain medicine beforehand because it's going to hurt so bad. There's some real potential negative side effects of all that. One is you'll increase a patient's anxiety because of negative operant conditioning. And then the pain that they do experience will actually be worse due to upregulation of cholecystokinin. This messenger actually makes the experience of pain worse. And we can affect that by how we condition the patient's expectations. We can do both positive and negative operant conditions. We can make it hurt worse. We can make it hurt less. Now, on the other hand, if I tell her that, hey, we'll go ahead, we're going to put this IED in today, it's not that big of a deal, then I think the same pain that she would experience, the same actual amount of measurable physical pain, will be perceived as less due to positive operant conditioning. So it could be that non-steroidals do decrease the actual pain, but then that pain is already upregulated because we've done negative operant conditioning by making them come back on a separate day and making them anxious and causing measurable upregulation in the levels of cholecystokinin due to this anticipation, and they do hurt worse. And we need to give them a non-steroidal just to make that hurting worse feel a little bit better. Right. So the actual benefit in pain is canceled out by the anticipation of pain. So instead of a placebo, it's almost more like a nocebo effect that, that we're doing when we give them pain meds and tell them these are pain meds for this procedure. But I would also be worried that patients who are told they have to come back to get their IUD placed for this pre-medication might be completely scared out of it and not come back at all, or otherwise just not be able to come back. Like this was their one shot and then they're just too busy. And I think a lot of younger patients, especially who I think are the ones who probably most need this effective contraception, they might go watch videos on social media in the interim and get scared of getting that IUD and change their minds and you'll never see them again until they're pregnant. So you also have the consequence 
of the unintended pregnancies or just simply the non-completion of obtaining this really highly effective birth control. And really this sort of negative conditioning that you've described that probably leads to a more negative experience, all in the name of pre-medication for the IUD placement. Yeah, and we know that's true. Number one thing you can do to improve the number of patients who get IUDs in your practice is to have them immediately available and to place them at the same appointment that they request them in. Yeah, so it seems like we've had high-level Cochrane data that says it it doesn't work to pre-medicate with mesoprostol or NSAIDs. We've had that for years now because most of these studies are older. So why would any sort of pre-medication still be practiced nowadays, do you think? I think there's a couple of factors maybe in play. The first is a lot of doctor's offices just don't stock IUDs or stock enough IUDs. And so they go through an ordering process to get the IUD and they plan on having the patient come back at a later visit when the IUD comes in. And then they think, well, hey, why not give them some pre-medication since they have to come back on a separate day anyway? And if you're doing IUD placements at any frequency high enough to be good at it, then honestly, you should be stocking them in your office. And there are companies now, by the way, that will stock them in your office and carry the cost of the overhead. They do the billing, they do all that for you, and they put them in a little safe. You have a code and they release them electronically so that you don't have to worry about the finance of it. The same exists for a lot of vaccines too, where a lot of especially private practice OBs will not stock vaccines or IEDs because there is a, they're expensive and you think about the overhead cost of it. So they get in the habit of sending to pharmacy or ordering them. But with companies doing that at no cost to you at all, there's really no excuse to not have them in your office nowadays. Now, the second more nefarious reason, I think, is just money. If you go to a doctor for birth control consult and they decide that you talk to them and you all decide you're going to get an IED, well, then they'll make significantly more money if you have the patient come back on another day to do the placement. And a lot of offices do this sort of nickel and dime approach to medicine where they unbundle, say, the ultrasound or the colposcopy or the endometrial biopsy or the birth control placement or whatever it is you might need that's a procedure. They unload that to a different day so that they can recover 100% of the billable CPT code involved. And they make a few more dollars, but the effect is significant inconvenience for the patient who may have to take additional days off from work or schedule more childcare or something like that, or have a partner that has to take time off from work to accompany you. And poor satisfaction, poor outcomes, especially if you get pregnant or you're scared you have cancer so you don't come back for that endometrial biopsy or something like that that you needed. So all that, again, increases the cost of the healthcare system and is opposite of what we talk about in the triple aim and therefore, frankly, is unethical. And I'll explain this coding thing to people if they don't understand. You get 100% of the first CPT code you bill, which is like an office visit. And then the second one you bill on the same day, you get 50%. And then you get down to 25% for subsequent ones. So if you come in with abnormal uterine bleeding or let's say postmenopausal bleeding, well, if you come to see me for postmenopausal bleeding, then I'll do the ultrasound. If the ultrasound shows that you have a thick endometrium when you're not supposed to, I'll go ahead and do the endometrial biopsy. So that means that whichever one of those costs more, I got 100% of the first fee, then 50%, then 25%. And I might even put an IED in you and they get 25% of that. Now, in other practices, you might come in and get the consult and then said, okay, well, we need to do an ultrasound. We're going to have you back next week. 
or two days from now for the ultrasound. Then you come get the ultrasound. Then they're going to have you back for the endometrial biopsy on a separate day. So what they're trying to do is get 100% of each CPT code. But you can see where that decreases compliance, really inconveniences a patient. They want to get their answers up front. They might be scared to not come back, etc. So this is taught in some of these classes about how to monetize your practice. And it's just unethical. Well, you sure love telling people what they do is unethical. So you'll be glad to know that I bought some extra storage space on our email account for all your hateful response emails. (laughs) And I put them in a special folder just for you. Well, thanks. You're such a friend. Okay. So the bottom line is there's no benefit to pre-medication with musoprostol or NSAIDs before an IUD placement. And in any event, we shouldn't be trying to have them come back on a separate day to get them if, if we can help it at all. If there's no contraindications, they want one, we should place it right then and there. So let's move on. Well, hang on a second. I feel like I lost the eponym battle earlier (laughs) by providing half of an eponym for you. Okay. So I've been doing work. Okay. And you mentioned the Ballard scoring system Uh that that came out to replace in in the 90s to replace the Dubowitz. The Ballard scoring system was named for Gene Ballard who is a professor emeritus of pediatrics, obstetrics, and gynecology at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. And there's no husband involved. This is straight up 100% a female eponym. All right. So then you have like one and you have one and a half. Nice. Okay. Well, kudos kudos to you. We'll just keep bringing them. Okay. So Ballard or Dubowitz, either one. Anyway, when we started this podcast a while ago, you had said that we would try to work in more literary pieces or poems or things like that, that were relevant to our field or the things we were discussing. And I've, I guess we've done that a couple times, but I feel like we're probably overdue for a nice little poem. Well, as you, there are poems published, I think almost every edition of JAMA magazine and Sometimes they have something to do with our specialty. So there was a poem in the December 13th edition of JAMA that I'll read to you. It's called Miscarriage. That's how I knew it was about our specialty. (laughs) But before I read that, I was also recently reminded of Sylvia Plath by my amazingly literate medical student. And Sylvia Plath, if you don't know about her, she had a lot of personal trauma related to her own pregnancy losses. And she wrote several poems about motherhood and pregnancy loss and miscarriage. The most famous of these, I think, is called Parliament Hill Fields. She wrote others, and I'm not going to read that to you. It's very long, but I will put a link to a YouTube video of Sylvia Plath herself, I think in like 1963, reading it. So if anybody's interested in that, or if you've ever read any of Sylvia's stuff, then check that out. Okay. Yeah. I have mixed feelings about Sylvia Plath, but I will admit she's an excellent writer. She was a great poet, and I, and your literary taste is quite complex, so I won't, I won't push too much about your mixed feelings. But let me read to you Miscarriage. Now, these poems submitted to JAMA are written by physicians, and this physician's name is Sarah Cross, who is in Connecticut. Sliding from the nidus, hot, wet, almost like every month, a funambulist lost, not yet male or female, pulp, pomegranate seeding, substance of many things, carbon, aspartic acid, from solid to liquid, stained smell of iron, on thighs. It passes away, flushes. Me, the only witness. I do have to ask, what is a funambulist? It's a tightrope walker, if that helps. I'm not sure that helps understand the poem any better, other than this miscarriage was on edge Mm, and could go either way. You've got bleeding, you've got a threatened miscarriage, and the tightrope walker fell off the rope, essentially. So 
the conceptus, the pregnancy, was walking a tightrope and lost before it was even male or female. Just a small little seed, substance of these many things, bleeding coming down her leg, etc. She's the only one who witnesses or knows about it. She's going through this process alone. I actually thought it was really good. And kudos to Dr. Sarah Cross. Yeah, that was good. Although very sad, of course. Miscarriages are sad. They are. Well, people can check out Sylvia's poems if they want. They can watch that YouTube video. I know you've been collecting poems about pregnancy loss and other things for your new book from all kinds of different eras. So looks like there's another couple to add. So now we can get back to science, if you don't mind. Wow. Okay. You have a one-track mind. Okay. Well, we have a bunch of recent literature, as you said, to cover, and that may go into the next couple of episodes even to get caught up on recent journals. But let's start with an article in JAMA in the December 20th, 2022 edition that looked at the effects of pessary versus surgery. So this would be pessary followed by surgery if pessaries don't work versus just going straight to surgery on patient-reported improvements with symptomatic pelvic organ prolapse. So this was a randomized controlled trial done at 21 hospitals in the Netherlands. It was designed as a non-inferiority trial. The patients were randomized, again, either to a pessary group followed by surgery if pessary didn't work, or to just surgery. And what they found was that an initial strategy of pessary placement, if possible or if it would work, and then only surgery if that failed, compared to just doing surgery straight away, that these strategies was not non-inferior to surgery. Okay, so not inferior is, that's the same as inferior, right? It was inferior to surgery. If you want to be, if you want to communicate clearly and be unambiguous, then yes. Okay. It was inferior. So the trial looked heavily at patient satisfaction and patient perception of how they're doing in many different regards and the obstruction and discomfort of pessaries along with their impact on sexual function contributed mostly, if not largely, to the preference for just going ahead and doing surgical correction and then therefore the higher rates of patient satisfaction. That is a, that is an interesting outcome. You think pessaries are so much less invasive and that you're saving patients who might not need surgery from the potential complications if you start with that. So I could see how this might actually change some people's practices. Do you think it changes your clinical practice? Well, I don't think it changes my clinical practice because I don't insist that women have to attempt a pessary before undergoing surgical correction. They certainly have an option. Instead, I would say it's individualized to many factors, including whether or not they're currently sexually active, how good a candidate they are for surgery, including some assessment of overall medical status and expected life expectancy. Younger women who have a longer life expectancy and are still sexually active simply don't want to deal with or live with pessaries. So I think it would change your practice if you were of the mindset that women with symptomatic prolapse should always have to attempt a pessary first and then get surgery only if that fails or they have a problem with it. But that's simply not what women want. And how do you know what women want? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I watched that Mel I watched that Mel Gibson movie, What Do Women Want Once? So. Okay. How's that working out for you? Okay. Yeah, just go on. Okay. They made a female version of that, too, I think, where the woman gets hitting her head and knows what men want. I can't, I don't know if I've seen it, but I think they made one. Is she a urologist? (laughs) Maybe. I'll have to watch that. Okay. Well, my turn. There's an important study from the December 1st, 2022 edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. This was original research. It's called buprenorphine versus methadone for opioid use disorder in pregnancy. 
So this trial looked at 15,000 women over an 18-year period, that's pretty long, who were pregnant and were exposed to either buprenorphine or methadone during their pregnancies. And they looked at several maternal and neonatal outcomes to compare the two medications. Drum roll, please. What did they find? All right. Well, in the maternal fetal dyads who were exposed to buprenorphine compared to the methadone, there was a lower rate of neonatal abstinence syndrome, lower preterm birth rate, lower rate of growth restriction, and the rates of maternal complications were similar in the two groups. So overall, this is probably the most compelling study to date to address this question of what to use for opioid maintenance. And it appears that buprenorphine management of opioid abuse disorder is significantly superior to methadone. Because methadone wasn't superior to buprenorphine in any single one of the 12 outcomes they measured. Yeah, and these numbers aren't marginal either. So for example, the preterm birth rate was 14% in the BUP group versus 25% in the methadone group. The low birth weight was 8% versus 14%. The neonatal abstinence syndrome was 52% versus 69%. So I think going forward, it's pretty hard to argue that women should be placed on methadone maintenance when buprenorphine is available during pregnancy. Agreed. Okay, my turn again. In the November 22nd edition of JAMA, there was a clinical guideline synopsis of a new guideline on the diagnosis and treatment of infertility in men. I know we did three episodes on infertility before, and of course focused mainly on women with a superficial overview of men, which is all they deserve. But (laughs) this is an excellent quick synopsis for those of us who at least need to have the 30,000 foot view of male infertility. So I'll put a link to it. I will just read one recommendation since most of it discusses things that we know, mainly, of course, that semen analysis should lead the workup and treatment of things like varicocils and stuff should be done, stuff that we know. But this one recommendation I thought was interesting and timely that, quote, testosterone monotherapy should not be prescribed for men interested in current or future fertility. So frustratingly for me, I see reproductive age men or men who are with reproductive age women, at least, who are prescribed testosterone therapy, and we know that the vast majority of male testosterone replacement in the United States is just quackery. But it does seem like a lot of people are writing the prescriptions and that those prescribers don't know that it negatively affects male fertility. They're certainly not telling their patients that is what I see. And then you discover this when the couple comes in infertile, and the guy thinks he's quite virile because he's on T. And then you tell them this, and then it can take several months to reverse the effects of the testosterone therapy. Plus, if they have a hypogonadism that actually needs treatment, they may need to go on Clomid or Letrozole for eight months or so to even get them where they need to be. So that we're not doing them any favors in many cases by going to these testosterone therapies, even for the men who actually need it, let alone all the men who don't need it. But I see this, unfortunately, very commonly where the man's on testosterone, didn't realize that that's essentially male birth control. They've been trying for a year. It's frustrating. Yeah. And just to clarify, it's not like they're being placed on the testosterone as a fertility booster or anything. It's completely for other things like regain your vitality. Mojo. Yeah, exactly. Mojo. There's a commercial in my area. Get your mojo back. That's terrible. Yeah, and it's hard to know how much of that replacement therapy is legitimate in any way. There there was a study in 2017 in Canada that showed that out of 4,800 men receiving testosterone prescriptions, less than 40% of them appeared to have 
any true medical indications or criteria for therapy. But I suspect that even the Canadians do a better job of prescribing it appropriately versus the folks in the U.S. that are advertising Get Your Mojo. Yeah, every other street corner here has a tea clinic. And the Canadian system at least has like well-defined guidelines. And most of the physicians work whole or in part with the Canadian system. So my guess is the number is dramatically smaller here of how many of those prescriptions are legitimate. And again, even if they do have hypogonadism, it may be that they should be on clomid or letrozole. Well, hopefully someone out there that's listening knows to tell your male patients not to take this if they can help it. Okay, so there's a couple articles in the January 2023 issue of the Green Journal that I wanted to point out. One was a trial that compared fasting versus eating before the one-hour glucose tolerance test. And we normally don't, when we tell people they're not supposed to be fasting for this, but they were studying what difference can that cause in the outcome. And we had talked fairly recently on a different episode about in general, the gestational diabetes diagnosis. So here we are again with this new study that compared fasting for six or more hours before that one-hour glucose test versus eating within two hours before doing the test. And actually, the women who fasted for six or more hours had double the incidence of a positive, so a failed test, compared to the ones who ate sooner or closer to doing the test. And the authors did a good job of explaining why this is probably an anticipated normal physiological response to fasting. And the question is still whether or not there should be any kind of restriction at all on eating right before. So in other words, if someone eats a large donut with a latte, with extra an extra sugary latte, and then they come straight in and drink the 50 gram glucose test, you'd think surely that shouldn't be the same as someone who didn't eat at all in the last hour or definitely not the last six hours. You'd think they would have a horrible failure on that test, but maybe surprisingly it it is the same. Maybe someone with a normal level of insulin resistance and glucose response will do just fine regardless of how much their glucose load is. So six hours of not eating versus eating within two hours, it's just one of many possible variations. I'm probably not going to tell my patients like you should definitely eat a donut immediately before you do this test. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. But again, science is surprising sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. The authors of this are also not certain if those positive results that came up could have been false positives or true positives. So we may still need another study Maybe one that focuses on the three-hour test, fasting versus not fasting. And for that, we tell people you you need to be fasting to understand what the influence is on the true rate of diabetes versus false positive diagnoses. And it is important to note, I think, that there were no differences in the neonatal or maternal outcomes in this study between the two groups. So that implies that all of those extra positives in, in the fasting group we're all false positives. And it appears from this study and the prior ones that we've talked about before that recommending fasting for several hours probably increases the rate of false positive diagnoses of GDM. So in the absence of other studies that 
maybe ones that haven't been done yet, we probably should just tell people you really should eat a light meal before coming in to do that one hour glucose test. Just don't completely overdo it, especially not on the simple sugars and extra icing on your donut or anything. And this this reminds me of my glucose test because I was feeling really nauseous still in my pregnancy, even at 24 weeks and not really eating well. And I remember being surprised when I did my one hour test, I hadn't eaten anything before and I almost failed it by our facility standards. At least I got a 139. I know at some other places that would have been counted a straight up failure. And so I thought, well, there, I just barely skated under without eating anything. So maybe I am almost diabetic, but now it makes sense. It was just a normal response to fasting. And you probably had higher stress hormone levels due to the nausea and discomfort. And then you're fasting. So you have a glucocorticoid response from your liver to help you because you're in a fasting state and et cetera. So, yeah. And if anybody knows Antonia, she's the exact opposite of diabetes. Like she's the poster person for not diabetic. But but yet a lot of very thin women with no risk factors do fail the test. And they may go on to pass the three-hour But obviously, the point of the screening test is to prevent people from having to do the three hour to begin with because it's inconvenient. Yeah. So I think, yeah, for me, the problem with patients thinking that they're supposed to fast is that if they come in the morning. So I have been telling people not to eat anything heavily for the couple hours before the test. Right. Well, if your 8 a.m. appointment is when you're doing your glucola, then that means practically you didn't eat since dinner last night. So it's essentially like tell them to be completely fasting if they have an earlier morning appointment. They're not going to get up at 5.30 a.m. and eat a banana and then fast for two additional hours. So, yeah, I probably should just not say anything or, if anything, say don't eat anything heavy before you come in. But it's okay to eat breakfast. Maybe we should be telling them to eat breakfast. But then again, that would, I think, needs to be clarified to talk about how much carbs we're talking about. So the oral glucose challenge, the tolerance test, some people call that the O'Sullivan test. All right. Another ethanym, huh? Well, yeah. And so since I've been looking for female eponyms, I've sat here, I've looked that up to see if O'Sullivan was a female. All right. Let me guess. Yeah. It's a guy. Yeah. I thought so. Oh, well, it, it's it's worth looking into all of these now. Well, okay. There was another article in that same Green Journal edition called Trends in Attempted and Successful Trial of Labor After Caesarean from 2010 to 2020. So the good news from this one is that attempts at a trial of labor after cesarean increased from 15% in 2010 to 21% in 2020. And also the rate of success increased from just about 70% up to just about 75%. That means the total VBAC rate, with counting together the increased success and the increased attempts, increased from about 10% in 2010 to 16% in 2020. So it's climbing. It's still pretty low, but it's going in the right direction. Well, this is good news. The trends for both attempting and successfully completing are increasing. And so both of those, I think, reflect an increasing comfort level in the obstetric community with VBAC. If more VBACs are being attempted or more trial labors are being attempted, then that would imply that you're probably more comfortable with it and therefore probably be more tolerant of the process itself, which means you'll have a greater success rate. So all that's a good trend for pregnant women with one or two prior cesarean deliveries who are candidates to try that they hopefully find a more receptive 
obstetrician to do that for them. I'll also say if you correlate these with national C-section rates, there has been a plateau, slight decline in C-section rate. And some people are patting themselves on the back for that due to maybe the primary prevention of cesarean guideline or things like that. And I don't think that that's actually why it's going down. I think it's going down because VBACs are going up and because women are having fewer children. So a lot of women who have a prior cesarean, for example, they're not having another child that would add another C-section into the numerator. So this is true, but at the same time, we still probably have a lot of work to do in preventing primary cesarean. And the increased VBACs over that 10-year period may be due to a changing workforce as well, potentially. I think in general, younger OBGYNs probably are more comfortable with trial of labor after cesarean because it's something that's been it's been emphasized heavily from the beginning of our training whereas older physicians who might have trained in previous decades were probably less comfortable with it back in the 90s and stuff when there was more lawsuits and just the literature out was really pet against VBAC so to speak and I think we're about two generations into the form formal support of VBAC that from ACOG and from other major societies. And I imagine the changing medical legal landscape also supports this. The high point for obstetric malpractice lawsuits was in the early 2000s, and that landscape has slightly improved as well. Yeah, and it needs to improve more to work on the C-section rate as a whole, and frankly, the maternal mortality rate, which is so tightly correlated and tied to the performance of cesareans. So I think when we talk about maternal mortality rates, it's important to recognize that tort reform and changing the culture of medical malpractice lawsuits is part of that. Not to underscore the point too much, but plaintiff's attorneys create an environment that actually kill women by inducing people to section over the one variable on the tracing because they're afraid of a bad baby lawsuit or things like that. So we have to come up with a better way of doing that and also still being fair to women who've been harmed by legitimate malpractice. Okay, well, there's a report in the January 2023 Gray Journal about some deaths related to tranexamic acid at the time of cesarean delivery due to the inadvertent administration of an ampule of transdeminic acid by the anesthetist into the intrathecal space through the epidural catheter. So it's important to be aware of these sorts of drug errors, and unfortunately, a number of women worldwide have died due to this problem, and the numbers are accelerating more recently as this drug becomes more commonly used at, in, in obstetrics. I think the authors had identified at least 10 deaths so far, and they have several suggestions for how to mitigate and prevent these errors, but just realize that this drug comes in a glass ampule that looks very similar to other medications that are on the anesthesia cart that the anesthetist might normally be using and injecting into the intrathecal space. So storing them separately and coming up with really good labeling that differentiates them is important. And it's something that each of us as advocates for our patients and physician leaders need to bring back to our institutions and facilities and make sure that this is being addressed. I hadn't heard of this. And I think we already had enough reasons to be terrified about epidurals. As often as we get them and everything, they can go horribly wrong in rare cases. The ones that the things that I had heard of, I I actually just recently read of a case, this was in the New York Times, where a patient died. And I think it was because the epidural catheter had been threaded way too far in. And the backstory was this was a problematic provider who had done this multiple times. And 
hadn't hadn't been disciplined or anything. And I guess in this case, it basically gave her like a high spinal, it anesthetized her diaphragm or something, and they couldn't get her resuscitated. So that was very tragic and scary. Yeah. And, and, and I will say that was a physician. And the only reason I say that is I know a lot of physicians are sensitive. They hear a story like that, and then they'll turn it into a nurse anesthetist versus yeah. physician kind of argument. Yeah. That was an MD anesthesiologist who did that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other cases I've heard about of epidural causing death is is other medications that were either meant for the epidural, but then they were absent accidentally given through the peripheral IV tubing or vice versa. And the vice versa TXA is just a new example of that. But if you notice now on a labor and delivery unit, there is a lot of effort at labor labeling the different Lurelock catheters and the ends of the epidural versus the ends of the peripheral IV. And also, if possible, even keeping the different IV pumps versus epidural pumps on opposite sides of the bed and then having those all very clearly, obviously labeled correctly. That sort of stuff in general is standard now, but it only came about after women were either injured or killed by the administration of meds meant for one one route that went through the other route instead because these things were not labeled as clearly before. So most people probably don't realize that all that effort exists because there used to be a problem, a really serious problem. But now we need to similarly emphasize and create strong quality controls around the tranexamic acid as well. Now knowing that the ampules can be confused with the epidural medication ampules so that we make sure there's never any danger of intrathecal administration of the tranexamic acid. So I'm glad I hadn't read about this development before I got my epidural and also glad that you know, that I didn't die from my epidural either. When you look at patient harms that occur, a lot of people will talk about the Swiss cheese model where you need Mm -hmm. several layers of failure to occur before some tragic accident like this happens. There are several things that need to go wrong for a woman to die because this has occurred. But in that Swiss cheese model, and again, you all know the email address, you can send them in. But in that Swiss cheese model, at the very top of it is the unnecessary C-section to begin with. So the more patients you take to the OR for unnecessary C-sections, the more you're going to expose them to this riskier milieu where these sorts of things happen. These are all related to C-sections. The second thing is overuse of tranexamic acid. Then that's going to create more opportunities for these one in a million or one in a thousand or one in 10,000 things to occur. So people are way too nonchalant about these things. Pulmonary embolisms after C-section are one in some number I'd have to look up. But clearly, the more C-sections you do, the more opportunities you're going to have for somebody to have a pulmonary embolism. And so all that's part of safe patient care is not overutilizing medications, not overutilizing interventions. Yeah, I think at least in in my setting, we don't really tend to think about there being a significant risk to TXA. And so a lot of times we see more bleeding than we think we should, and we're pretty quick to ask for it, whether in a C-section or vaginal delivery. So something to consider for sure and really to look at where are all the different pumps and stuff and make sure it's not a total newbie nurse that maybe should have had a little bit of extra supervision or something like that. 
Well, and that's what I mean by faddish, right? So everybody grows up in a time where a particular thing is new and being pushed. And admittedly, right now in residency programs and all the literature from the last five years, TXA is the rage. And the same in ortho and a lot of other places. But just appreciate that 10 years ago, nobody used it. And it's not like we have had seen a significant decline in hemorrhages or whatever. So we all get accustomed to things. And when it's part of that curve of how new interventions come out and affect us, I call it the Herald Curve sarcastically, but that's not its real name. But we're in a period of over-enthusiasm about tranexamic acid and one of the, or Jada or whatever else. And then one of the things that helps us like reconsider and recenter enthusiasm for these novelties is to see a report of dozens of women getting high, getting hurt by this and 10 women dying, something that no one really even thought about happening. But unintended consequences often result from enthusiasm. So, and I say that in quite literally, like how many women's lives have been saved by tranexamic acid in these minor indication uses? These just, well, why not? We're here. Give it to her. Well, I bet you now more lives have been taken than have been saved. And mortality is rare enough that that's not a crazy idea. We're so good at treating hemorrhage without tranexamic acid, in, 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 at least in the United States, that you could make a great argument now that tranexamic acid's on the harm side. Most of those cases were international, just to point out to listeners. But still, unintended consequences we don't find about out find out about until many years after our youthful exuberance for some new thing has come about, and then we eventually get on a pathway to rational use. Okay, there's a couple of more articles in the February edition, this month's edition of the Green Journal that we should talk about. Both of them are about things that to me are already settled, but it's interesting that they keep coming up and being researched and papers get, keep getting published because even though it seems to me like they're settled, well, it's people practice in a way that seems to be inconsistent with research for a long time. So dogma dies hard. All right. Well, what have you got? Okay. Well, the first one is a study called the effect of second stage pushing timing on postpartum pelvic floor morbidity. This was actually taken from another trial looking at the same thing. It was another intended sub-analysis, but there was a randomized controlled trial. They randomized patients with epidurals, noliparous patients, I believe all of them, to either immediate pushing or delayed pushing after one hour. And then in this part of the study, they looked at a variety of pelvic floor outcomes, including perineal lacerations, POP-Q measurements, or patient-reported pelvic floor complaints at both six weeks postpartum and at six, six months postpartum, and they found no difference. Yeah, we've talked about delayed pushing before and other reported benefits. And we've talked about studies that have shown that it's that's really not beneficial or superior to women compared to immediate pushing. And I'm not sure why people would even think that delayed pushing would have any benefit in terms of pelvic floor function. Because if anything, the fetal head, it's down deep in the pelvis against that pelvic floor for a much longer time period while you're laboring down for hours, at least another hour or more compared to just immediate pushing. But this study confirms that it doesn't save anyone from tears or lacerations or prevent any pelvic floor symptoms. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. We were already at a point where delayed pushing is really not an appropriate thing to do anymore. And we just haven't found benefits to the patient with some potential harms on the fetal side. And this maybe just takes away another reason or thing that some people might be claiming is beneficial about doing it. But there's just no reason to be doing delayed pushing outside of the context of a clinical trial with informed consent. There, there may be some practical things that come up, like 
a patient needs some time to get optimal pain control on board or the team is doing some other emergency or something else and they need a few minutes to get together before pushing starts or things like that. So obviously those are decisions that we make clinically and individually, but in terms of doing it programmatically because we think it provides some benefit, that's just not the case. So I'm not sure we need more clinical trials exploring this any further. Okay. And what was, didn't you have another paper too? Yeah, there's another paper called Maximum Dose Rate of Intrapartum Oxytocin Infusion and Associated Obstetric and Perinatal Outcomes. Now, the authors of this paper, this was done at Yale, I believe, note in the introduction that a maximum dose rate of oxytocin, usually 20 milliunits per minute, is one that a lot of people talk about, that that's not based upon any science. That's not based upon anything. So they looked at their own experiences at their institutions and tried to see if there was either some diminishing return of successful vaginal deliveries once a patient had oxytocin above a certain threshold, or maybe an unacceptable and dose-related increasing risk of maternal or neonatal morbidities above some threshold of oxytocin. And they found that there, in fact, was continued benefit in terms of chance of successful vaginal delivery when oxytocin was raised above 20. And of course, you might expect there to be some increased risk, say, especially of hemorrhage with higher oxytocin values. There is a linear increase of risks like hemorrhage that occur from one of oxytocin up to 100. But they don't change to become some unacceptable risk at some significant level, or there's not like a big jump that happens once you get past 20 and all of a sudden women just start bleeding out. It's a minor and insignificant thing compared to the benefit they accrue from having a vaginal delivery. Yeah, this was an interesting pick. So they concluded that how much oxytocin, like what rate is needed, should be individualized to the patient. Not surprising. Some patients need more, especially older or more obese patients. And there's really nothing magical about 20 or any other number for that matter. Yeah, at my institution, we typically go up to 30, just standard without question. And then if we're at 30 and she's not moving, then we can reassess that. And then oftentimes we'll go up to 36 and very rarely I'll go higher than that. There is a lot of literature that supports higher numbers than 36. There's probably people listening here laughing at how hmm. lackadaisical I am at stopping at 36, but there there are literature out there that certainly takes it higher. In my experience, I rarely have ever once a year need to go past 36. Almost everybody has a vaginal delivery with numbers less than that. But on the other hand, if you stop at 20 routinely as a, some kind of artificial limit, you're probably increasing your section rate by 10 or 15 points or so just by doing that. I think the exact number of how more section, how many more sections you're doing is hard to know. But in this study, 15% of the women and their patients who went on to deliver vaginally required more than 20 millions of oxytocin to get there. So it's not unreasonable to think that if they didn't give them that oxytocin, they wouldn't have ended up with sections or maybe unnecessary operative deliveries or, or something, or even just longer deliveries with choreo or something like that. You said there's probably people out there laughing that you would stop at even at 36. But I think there's also a lot of people out there that are completely shocked that you would go over 20. Like 20 is the way. It's always been. That's the point of the paper. Yeah. Yeah. It's just in the order sets. You don't question it. But there are a ton of studies at this point that indicate that we should be using as much oxytocin as necessary. And apparently there's some protocols out there that include going up to rates as high as 80 milliunits per minute. And 80 is that... Even for me, I get a little nervous thinking about that. I can only imagine <laughs> the reactions of people I work with now just getting 
ward t- turnover that, yeah, this laboring <laughs> patient is on 80 milliunits. I'm sure someone would flip a table or something. But anyway, so 20, where do you think this number actually came from? I've not been to 80, but I've been up there in living pregnancies. We do for demises go dramatically higher than those numbers, which is important to know in terms of like uterine rupture and things like that. You might think that if you're at 300 or something, you're going to cause damage. Nope, not at all. It's just a question of whether or not the fetus gets enough resting tone. And they actually probably do even at those higher numbers just because of mechanically the way the uterus works. But anyway, I think there are a couple of things that have increased the C-section rate related to this concept over the last 30 years. The first one is overutilization of intrauterine pressure catheters and a misunderstanding of what they mean. So if you're using an IEPC pretty regularly and, you're, and now your nursing staff or you believe that getting to 200 Montevideo units is the goal of the oxytocin that you're giving and you stop once you get there, then you're going to have a higher cesarean rate compared to someone who doesn't do that. So 200 Montevideo units is known to be adequate for about 85 to 90% of patients to achieve a vaginal delivery. That means, though, if you stop there at 200, you're automatically going to be sectioning 10 to 15% of your patients because you've not given them strong enough contractions to achieve a vaginal delivery. If you take IEPCs and you put them in women who present in true spontaneous labor, we find that about 40% of women in just spontaneous unaugmented labor have Montevideo units greater than 300, yet everybody's scared to go past 200, right? So 200 Montevideo units is very much meant to be a floor and not a ceiling but people start to treat it as a ceiling. So related to this is just is how people also will stop increasing the oxytocin by whatever protocol they have once they've achieved four to five contractions per 10 minutes, fear of going five or more and having tachycystole. So just because you have, let's say, four and a half contractions in a 10-minute time period, though, does not mean that if you continue to increase the oxytocin that you're going to have five or six contractions in a 10-minute time period and therefore have tachycystole. That's not the way it works. Tachycystole occurs actually with some difficulty because the uterus and the muscle fibers, very specifically the the calcium reset that takes that is needed for the muscles to contract and relax again, all that takes some time just physiologically. And so the it is actually very difficult to make a uterus contract six times in 10 minutes. So increasing the oxytocin when you already have four to five contractions in 10 minutes will likely just make those contractions stronger and not make them more frequent. And that's what we need. And that doesn't cause any more distress to the fetus. I always say if I take and dunk your head underwater and I do it every couple of minutes so that in 10 minutes you're underwater four and a half times for 45 seconds, well, you get your breath out in between. Well, it doesn't matter if I dunk you one inch underwater or 10 feet underwater, right? You're still underwater. You're still not breathing. And that's analogous to the spiral arteries named after, discovered by Nidabuck, being compressed during that contraction. It doesn't matter how strong the contraction is in a real absolute sense, but it does matter how strong the contraction is if you want to have a baby. So initially, if you're contracting once every 10 minutes, increasing the oxytocin will get the contractions closer and closer together. But then you reach a threshold and they just get stronger. And people just don't understand what I just said. So in the same way, a nurse who might stop increasing the oxytocin once she reaches 200 Montevideo units and, and then doesn't go any further, she may also choose to stop the oxytocin when she achieves four to five contractions in 10 minutes, but both of those practices are wrong. Okay. That, yeah, I can definitely see that. But let's say that either either we, we got the goal of the artificial floor goal of 200 MVUs or four and a half contractions or let's say that we didn't even quite get to the goal, but we're at 20 units, 20 milliunits of 
Pitocin rather, and per the protocol, they want to stop. So why is it that 20 that's in so many protocols? And why wasn't it wasn't it 25 or 30 or why not even 10? Well, yeah. So just like I said that it seems like 36 works for me to have as many vaginal deliveries as I do. That's what people have observed with 20. When you look at those metrics, a lot of data has shown that 20 milliunits per minute or less of oxytocin is usually all that you need to achieve those floors of 200 monovideo units or just under five contractions in a 10-minute time period. But again, the mindset's what matters. It's a floor, not a ceiling. So if you stop there, again, you're going to section 10 to 15 percentage points more people than I'm going to if I go past it. In the 90s, and in the early 2000s, when obstetric litigation, as you pointed out earlier, was way out of hand, not that it's not out of hand now, but it was really worse then, oxytocin was almost always cited by the plaintiff's attorney as a cause of harm or an action that the doctor or hospital took that led to the injury or bad outcome. It was, in fact, the number one cited point of litigation. Well, that's just the nature of filing lawsuits. The, they will cite everything that you did as an intervention. You have to find something that the doctor or nurse or somebody did or did not do that you can attribute the harm to. And so oxytocin is always listed. But this led to a rash of sort of risk management attorneys at hospitals across the country trying to crack down and regulate and develop protocols and safety protocols and policies and procedures for the safe use of oxytocin that would keep them out of legal trouble, hoping that that would fall away as a cause of obstetric litigation. Now, those risk management folks are not physicians, and they make the incorrect assumption that if a plaintiff's attorney often or usually cites oxytocin as a contributing factor to a bad outcome, then oxytocin must be a contributing factor to a bad outcome. But that doesn't make true because make it true because plaintiff's attorneys are also not doctors or scientists, right? They're just making claims. But nonetheless, in these sort of risk management protocols that came out of that bad era, it was easy to come up with objective things. You need objectivity like 200 Montevideo units or four to five contractions in 10 minutes and then stop. Once you reach that, stop. Anything more than that is unsafe. And then paradoxically, that led the C-section rate to rise by 10 or 15 points, which actually did contribute to more women dying in childbirth. Well, so there's our answer. I guess the greedy lawyers gave us the 20 milliunit limit. I can't remember if Shakespeare had something to say about lawyers, but I can't remember <laughs> right now. So is that our historical tidbit for the day then, the history of obstetric lawsuits? No, but I can tell you a little bit more about O'Sullivan when I was trying to figure out if it was a he or a she. Okay. Okay. Then go ahead. So he was a he, John B. O'Sullivan. He immigrated to the United States from Ireland in the mid-1950s and joined the relatively new National Institute of Health or Institutes of Health which was working on the epidemiology of a lot of chronic diseases at the time. So then, as today, there was a lot of controversy regarding how many, what percentage of pregnant women should be classified as having gestational diabetes and how to best test for it. So some of the methods back then classified literally one in three pregnant women as having diabetes. Now, our methods today and our criteria today get us around 6% of pregnant women, although just in the last few years, we've seen the two-hour one-step test that would make 10 to 12% of women pregnant. So we're still obviously debating all these things today. And we still see a lack of really great data that shows consistent improvements in outcomes when you increase the number of women who we label as gestational diabetic. So we've talked about this before. We're on the trend backwards where we're maybe making fewer women diabetic to focus our efforts on the sickest of the patients, perhaps. But who knows? I don't think we're there yet. And I wouldn't be surprised if the true incidence of gestational diabetes should be something like 2 or 3% of the population. That doesn't mean that we don't err on the side of overdiagnosis and make 5 or 6% labeled that, but that's a different discussion. In any event, O'Sullivan developed the 100-gram 3-hour 
oral glucose tolerance test that is what we're still using today to be the definitive diagnostic test for gestational diabetes. And then he worked on the numbers, the results of that test that appeared to at least statistically reveal the appropriate amount of women who you might call gestational diabetic. And his method became widely accepted and, again, is what we still basically use today. He also did follow-up studies in the decade or two after that, which seemed to show that treatment of gestational diabetes with insulin could reduce infant macrosomia. Now, that's important because in the last few decade and a half, we've seen a lot of studies about oral agents like gliburide for treating gestational diabetes, and we found that they don't reduce macrosomia. And because of that, we've gone back. ACOG actually has changed the guideline in the last, I think, eight years. And we've gone away from oral agents like gliburide back to insulin for the treatment of gestational diabetes, largely relying upon O'Sullivan studies in the 1960s that claimed that that was beneficial. And I say that only to say that it's very likely that insulin itself doesn't reduce the incidence of macrosomia, at least in a clinically meaningful way. In other words, like making a baby two or three ounces smaller doesn't change outcomes we're interested in. But good diet and exercise, those things do reduce the incidence of fetal macrosomia. But once you add other oral agents or insulin, my guess is that there's no continued real benefit in fetal size. And I don't think that's generally well understood. But it's just a reminder that the assumption that insulin reduces fetal macrosomia in a significant way goes back to perhaps flawed data from about 60 years ago, and that it's difficult to distinguish from the impact that diet and exercise has on gestational diabetes from the medicines you might be giving a patient. And so we still frequently see this conflated in studies. But newer studies tend to not show the kind of benefits that from medicines and interventions that were shown back then because we're just better today in our multivariate analysis at controlling for some of those variables. That is all very interesting because it goes against a lot of the a lot of the current thinking of what of what the pathophysiologic process is of GDM. I I really wish we could get more into that today. I think we're way over time. Maybe next time we can talk about how would insulin not reduce macrosomia like it because it when it doesn't even cross the placenta, but it does increase things like maternal amino acids and things that do cross the placenta and those could probably contribute to macrosomia at least as much as maternal hyper hyperglycemia also can. So I anyway, I think we need probably a lot more airtime on a whole another episode to discuss that better. So I know there there's still the prevailing thought that even really tight glucose control or just increased med doses can help. So anyway, l- let's get to that on a different episode, maybe next time. I will say just as a reminder to that discussion, the propensity of a patient needing insulin is also correlated with the propensity of the longevity of her diabetes. We're speaking about type 2s, which is mostly what we have. And then that gets into sort of White's classifications where they have poor vascular systems. Mm -hmm. So there's also this problem, especially in the 60s in O'Sullivan's era. But, you know, if you're an insulin-dependent diabetic, you probably don't have as good a vascular tree as a non-insulin-dependent diabetic. And therefore, what looks like a normal-sized baby is actually a growth-restricted baby due to a lack of oxygen. It's all very complicated. Yeah, like it was supposed to be macrosomic, but it's growth restricted from its Yeah, if you had a better vascular tree, yeah. it might have weighed two more pounds. Yeah. Okay. Well, the Thinking About OBGYN website will have links to what we discussed today. And the email address is thinkingaboutobgyn at gmail.com. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.